Welcome to Policy Chats, the official podcast of the School of Public Policy at the University of California, Riverside. I'm your host, Kevin Karami. Join me and my classmates as we learn about potential policy solutions for today's biggest societal challenges. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Policy Chats, featuring the founding dean of the University of California Riverside School of Public Policy, Anil Dilalakar. Dean Dilalakar, it is a pleasure to have you with us today. Uh, likewise, a pleasure, Kevin, for me to be here. I think a great way to get the conversation started about the most critical challenges we face today would be for you to first broadly outline them. What would you say are the most significant policy challenges facing our region, country, and the world? Uh, uh, thank you, uh, Kevin. I, I think the world uh, today, uh, societies around the world, are facing many significant challenges uh, and opportunities as well. I don't want to be a pessimist uh, and, and focus entirely on the challenges uh, without sort of mentioning that there are opportunities as well. Perhaps some other time we'll talk about opportunities, but today I'll focus on the challenges. And there are multiple challenges, but uh, I would say, uh, I would list uh, maybe four of them, three or four that I think are quite worrying and possibly very serious and would probably need addressing uh, soon. the first of these, I would argue, is global warming or climate change. Uh, uh, this is a significant worry. Uh, some of the damage from global warming has already been done. It is too late to, to arrest it. All we can do right now is try to limit uh, further worsening of the world's uh, environment. Uh, another uh, trend, another challenge I see uh, is rising inequality. And, and this is inequality of wealth, inequality of income, inequality of opportunity. And this poses significant challenges too. It, it results in, in uh, uh, very adverse consequences uh, about which I can talk later. Uh, a third challenge, uh, I think, and we have seen this arise recently in the last, I would say four or five years, is uh, the slow erosion of democracy, uh, the rise of populist leaders around the world and the slow erosion of democracy. Uh, and, and then the fourth uh, challenge I would highlight and about which we can talk today is uh, the return of what I would call big power conflict. Uh, we had an amazing period of uh, peace in the world uh, following the Cold War, uh, three decades of peace and prosperity. And I think we see a return of, of that big power conflict now uh, with some uh, recent political and international developments. So I would, I would list some of those as, as significant challenges that will need to be addressed uh, in the uh, short term. Well, thank you, Dean, for outlining the most important challenges we face today. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on them. Uh, At this point, we'll transition to a more in-depth discussion uh, regarding each of the topics you mentioned. Dean Dialalukar, you mentioned climate change as one of the biggest challenges 
uh, facing the world today. Why do you think uh, the world has found it so difficult to address global warming decisively? Uh, thank you, Zeno. Uh, I think, first of all, uh, before we delve into this topic, I should I should add a couple of remarks about climate change. Uh, so I think despite a few naysayers who say that, uh, uh, that climate change is not real, uh, the bulk of the evidence, 99% of all the climate scientists in the world and the United Nations uh, environmental group uh, basically have provided irrefutable evidence that the world is indeed warming uh, and that its warming is related to human activity. So climate change is for real. It is uh, related to human activity, uh, largely the unprecedented economic growth and industrial activity uh, that has been taking place over the last 200 plus years uh, uh, has contributed significantly to the warming of the planet. Now, why is it so difficult to address this issue? Uh, it's a political problem to some extent, simply because to address climate change, to address global warming, uh, you are going to have some winners and some losers from this process. Uh, take the example of uh, countries that historically contributed most to climate change and the countries that are today contributing most to global warming. Uh, up until 50 years ago, uh, it was mostly the United States and uh, Europe uh, that were growing very rapidly, that were uh, industrializing, and that contributed to uh, the warming of the planet. Uh, so if you look at the stock of all the carbon uh, in the air uh, right now, most of it has been contributed by the West. Okay, But in the last 40 or 50 years, as you have had the rise of development, countries in Asia particularly, but throughout uh, Latin America and Europe, Africa as well, these countries have increasingly contributed to global warming because they have stepped up their industrialization and their economic growth activities. Uh, and so now today, China is the biggest polluter and uh, India is the third largest polluter in the world. And, and United States sort of falls in between at second. And, and so these countries rightfully have said, well, you in the West sort of ended, uh, have uh, basically uh, polluted the world's environment uh, already. And you would like us now to uh, not sort of provide economic growth and economic progress for our citizens and try to curb our economic growth uh, in the interests of saving the planet. But you have already destroyed the planet's Earth, <laughs> planet's uh, atmosphere uh, so much. And, and so you have to make exemptions and you have to allow us to sort of uh, uh, do unrestrained growth. Uh, 
and and so I think there is this uh, this sort of uh, conflict between the uh, uh, industrializing countries and the industrialized countries, and that's why it's been very difficult to reach agreement on on uh, how do we hold the line on uh, on global warming. Uh, so that's been a problem. And, and then in the United States as well, we see this play out within the U.S. Uh, political arena. You have, uh, you have basically uh, uh, some regions of the United States which, uh, uh, which are big producers of coal and uh, oil. And, and as, uh, as the uh, uh, folks who... who want to uh, limit global warming, argue that we should try to uh, limit the use of fossil fuels. Uh, these producers of coal and oil are going to be impacted adversely. And so they are going to be the losers from this process of moving away from fossil fuels. And so they are objecting to this and, and we see this uh, playing out uh, uh, in US politics where the Republican Party, uh, for the most part, is is not very keen on adopting the same kind of liberal uh, uh, emission savings uh, policies as the Democratic Party is. Uh, so I think that's why that's certainly one reason why it's been difficult to reach of an agreement, uh, which is not to say that no agreement has been reached and that we have not made progress. We have indeed made a lot of progress in in uh, uh, controlling emissions. I think uh, uh, we have done quite a lot, unfortunately not enough. Does that answer yeah. some of your question? Yeah, thank you. And, and so with that kind of conflict and that kind of butting heads um, and that winner and loser reality um, of facing climate change, what can we do as ordinary citizens and students um, to help address climate change? And what specific policies um, might help in that? Well, what can we do as ordinary citizens, ordinary students, ordinary professors? Well, we can do a lot. We can, we can, uh, uh, we can make small, simple behavioral changes uh, using less water. As you know, one of the big problems, one of the effects of climate change has been worsening drought in in uh, California, at least. California faces a historic drought of the type it has not seen in hundreds of years. Uh, we need to be more, uh, we need to be more sort of uh, frugal in our consumption habits. Uh, we need to uh, treat water as a scarce resource. Make sure that we, uh, uh, you know, tell our, neighbors and friends and parents not to uh, run their, uh, to have their big lawns and water them uh, because that water is too precious to be wasted on keeping grass green. Uh, we have to sort of try to keep our houses a little warmer in the summer, a little cooler in the winter, not bump up the heating too much. Again, uh, do all that we can. We can sort of make these small steps uh, we can take these small steps and save a lot of energy and a lot of fossil fuels being uh, emitted into the environment. Uh, all the little bits count. Uh, you know, I just sort of 
having frugal consumption habits, switching off lights when we don't need them, uh, to the extent possible, limiting our commutes by car, uh, taking the bicycle to work if you can. Uh, all of these things can play an important role in saving uh, planet Earth. Uh, now, your second part of your question was policies. I should add that California has some of the most progressive policies when it comes to climate change. California has actually done more than almost any other state in the in the country in terms of uh, uh, setting uh, very ambitious goals uh, for uh, emissions control. Uh, and it has achieved uh, many of these goals. Actually, it has achieved uh, some of the goals it set uh, for itself 40 years ago. Uh, but there are many other policies that uh, the United States uh, could, uh, could implement uh, in order to uh, reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. I think we, for instance, despite a lot of discussion, there is no federal carbon tax. Uh, in California, we do have a carbon tax of sorts, but, but there is no federal carbon tax. Uh, in California, we have a mandate, uh, you know, that 50% of the electricity should come from renewable sources by 2030. Uh, there was a recent uh, mandate that all cars sold in the state of California will be electric by 2035. All of these are ambitious goals, uh, but California as a state alone cannot achieve them. Uh, the entire country has to sort of go along with some of these goals. Uh, uh, in, in some ways, you can almost think about California as a giant experiment to show what can be done by policy to control emissions. And uh, this experiment is proving to be very successful. So I hope that other states in the United States uh, uh, can, can emulate this example. Uh, uh, but, you know, uh, again, I think there is a lot of room uh, to bring in policies that will control some of the emissions. We have to realize, of course, that a lot of the damage to the environment has already been done. Uh, the earth is warming. There's going to be warming uh, that will continue despite our best efforts because of all the historic levels of emissions that have accumulated in the atmosphere. Uh, and, and so we should also think about public policies that mitigate some of the adverse impacts of uh, global warming. Uh, and, and certainly our region in California, which is amongst the poorest regions in, in the state and in the country, uh, is going to suffer a lot uh, from global warming. And so in that sense, I think uh, public policy should be prepared to address and mitigate some of these uh, uh, negative effects uh, of global warming on the state and on our region. Join us on December 6th for a special seminar on One Water Solutions to Western Water Challenges, creating a resilient and reliable water future in the face of climate change. Our panel will feature three prominent figures in water management to discuss this important issue. To learn more, go to spp.ucr.edu. 
You can also find the RSVP link in our show notes. Dean Dialalakar, you mentioned rising inequality as one of the big challenges facing all societies today. How much has inequality worsened in the world, in the United States, and in our region in the last decade or two, and why? And how can public policy address this problem? Uh, Catherine, uh, I really do think that rising inequality is is one of the most serious challenges the world is facing today. And by inequality, I mean inequality of all sorts, inequality of income and inequality of uh, assets and property, inequality of opportunity, most importantly. Uh, and, and of course, as we know from, uh, from the literature, uh, inequality of incomes and of assets uh, often results in disparities of health outcomes, disparities in education, and it sort of becomes a vicious uh, cycle of inequality. So the scale of inequality today is staggering. I mean, let me just tell you a couple of uh, facts uh, to tell you how how unequal this world is. Uh, Today, the richest 1% of the world controls about 40% of the wealth. So think about that. I mean, just 1% of the world, 1% of seven or 8 billion people control nearly half of all the wealth in this world. That's very unequal. Uh, The 10 richest billionaires in the world, most of whom are in America, uh, own more wealth than the GDPs of several countries, large countries like Brazil, Australia, Spain, Mexico, Turkey. Uh, And and what we have seen happen is rising inequality throughout the world, even in in socialist countries like China. China started off as one of the most equal societies you could imagine uh, 50, 70 years ago, and today is one of the most unequal societies uh, in the world. Uh, United States, we have uh, actually the period right after the Second World War was a period of relative equality uh, during the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. But beginning in the 1980s, we started seeing inequality rise and rise and rise, and it's become much worse. Even just since the uh, Great Recession of 2008, inequality has worsened considerably in the United States. So um, one indicator of how uh, much inequality has worsened is given by this statistic, uh, which is that if you look at the average pay of a CEO in a company relative to the average production worker in that company, uh, that used to be, the ratio used to be about 25 uh, in the in the 1960s and 1970s. So uh, average CEO, CEO was paid 25 times the average worker, production worker in a factory. Uh, today, that ratio is now not 25, not 50, not 100, not even 200. It is 300. So that tells you how unequal uh, things have become. And... And in fact, if you look at the real wages of uh, the poorest Americans, uh, they have not changed much. They have been pretty stagnant over the last 40 years. In fact, by some indicators, real wages of the poorest Americans have fallen 
while those of college graduates have increased enormously. Uh, so you've sort of seen a big polarization uh, of incomes. Now, in our own region, uh, the inequalities are equally glaring. Uh, for instance, uh, if you look at a, uh, you know, in Eastern Coachella Valley, if you look at a city, uh, a town of Indian Wells, it has a per capita, an average household income of about 200, more than $200,000. Uh, and if you look at another town in Eastern Coachella Valley, Mecca, uh, it has an average household income of 25,000. So there's almost sort of a nine to one ratio uh, of average household incomes. Uh, so our own region here in the Inland Empire has seen a rapid rise in inequality. Now, why has it occurred? Many factors, it's complicated, it's nuanced, but I would say definitely globalization has been one factor that has put a strain on, on inequality. Uh, what has happened primarily in globalization is that a lot of manufacturing jobs that paid well in developed countries like the United States were offshored to low-income countries like China or Mexico. Uh, and of course, that has put downward pressure on wages in low-skilled jobs in the United States. Some people argue that immigration, large-scale immigration, uh, uh, especially immigration by low-skilled workers has also put downward pressure on, on low-skilled jobs uh, in rich countries. And, and to some extent, that's true, although one can argue about, uh, about exactly, you know, I, I think on the whole, immigration has been beneficial for the world, uh, as has globalization. Uh, but they have definitely uh, increased inequality. And, and the idea was that governments would somehow compensate for this inequality by putting in policies uh, to address this rising inequality that's inherent in globalization, in the globalization process. But uh, what did governments do? Governments actually did not do much to address this inequality. In fact, if anything, uh, I think public policy has, has worsened inequality. Uh, and, and there are many reasons for that. I think the uh, tax policy has been generally very favorable to the rich relative to the poor, uh, even though we are supposed to have a, a uh, progressive uh, tax system. In reality, it's not very progressive. You have lots of loopholes. And in the United States, uh, uh, the rich often don't end up paying uh, their fair share of taxes. Uh, in fact, if you look at, we everyone likes to complain that uh, tax rates in the United States are very high, but if you actually look at the United States in comparison to other affluent countries, uh, we have a fairly modest uh, tax rate. Uh, in Europe, it is much higher. Uh, so there are many taxes. Uh, I mean, the tax system is, is somewhat biased in favor of... Uh, uh, in favor of uh, uh, the rich, and and it works against uh, the poor in many ways. Uh, what can we do about uh, about inequality or about rising inequality? I think uh, we need to have the political will to address inequality head on. And most governments have not shown that strong political determination to to do this. 
one important factor I would like to draw your attention to is the role of education. Uh, public higher education actually plays a role in, in reducing inequality. Uh, universities like UCR actually uh, are great engines of social mobility. Uh, what they do is they take students from disadvantaged groups and give them a college education and and put them in um, uh, in uh, the higher income uh, deciles of the income distribution. Basically, uh, you take people who are disadvantaged and move them into the advantage category uh, through education. And, and so I think universities, public universities like UCR play a very important role in social mobility and in improving inequality, but we need more uh, universities like UCR to, to make a big difference. Uh, and then of course, I think coming back to the other question, I think uh, we, we need to uh, have a serious conversation in this country and around the world on, on using the tax system more effectively uh, to address inequality. Uh, there's been discussion in the United States for several years now uh, of putting a wealth tax, uh, you know, modest wealth tax, uh, a 2% wealth tax on properties that are worth more than $50 million and 3% wealth uh, tax for uh, properties of a billion dollars or more, but that discussion hasn't gone anywhere. I don't think there's the political support for introducing a wealth tax of that sort. Uh, there's also no federal inherent tax, inheritance tax, so even though we do have an estate tax. Uh, that would go a long way in making sure that uh, inequality is not perpetuated across generations. So I hope I've answered your question in terms of why inequality has risen, why it is a problem, and what we can do about it. Yes, Dean, thank you for sharing the statistics about wealth and the rise of inequality in the world in the recent decades. I really believe the solutions that you've talked about really help show how public policy can really address this problem. Dean Dialalakar, you mentioned the slow erosion of democracy as a challenge facing the world today. What exactly do you mean by that? And how and why has this happened? Uh, Andrew, uh, I mentioned that as a challenge that many societies around the world are facing today. Uh, and, uh, and I think it is uh, the result of two main factors. One is uh, something I referred to earlier uh, about the rise of inequality in many countries. And what has happened with the rise of inequality is that it has created a class of disaffected individuals, people who haven't really benefited from economic growth or from the process of globalization. In fact, many of these individuals have, uh, have been hurt by uh, the process of globalization. Um, you know, the jobs that they held, the manufacturing jobs that they held before, which paid them decent wages are uh, have all been exported out to low-income countries. And, and so wages at the lower end of the uh, scale uh, have stagnated or even come down in real terms. And so this has left a group of individuals 
disaffected. And I think what has happened in many countries is that politicians uh, have seized this opportunity. Some politicians, I should say, uh, have preyed on this disaffected class of individuals and and played up on their fears uh, by saying that, look, uh, uh, your situation is what it is today because you uh, uh, you haven't really uh, uh, you have had uh, your jobs have been exported out to countries like China or Mexico. We, uh, you have had your jobs taken away by all these immigrants who have come from abroad. Uh, and and they are made to feel as if they are under threat, uh, and and as a result of this, you have I, I would almost call this a kind of populism that has uh, played into politics, uh, and and that is one reason why you have uh, populist parties on the rise throughout the world, and many of these populist parties. Uh, are using elections to get them into power, but once they are in power, they often uh, sort of stack up the rules of the elections in such a way that uh, uh, they will never be voted out of power again. And we have seen this happen in, in many countries, alarmingly, in, in Europe, in Latin America, in Asia, uh, and here even in North America. Uh, so I think that's certainly uh, what I would call as a worrying trend. Uh, it is uh, related to the rising levels of inequality. Uh, it is related to uh, high levels of immigration. I mean, I think uh, immigration is generally very positive for everyone concerned, but I think uh, it has to be managed well. And unfortunately, uh, immigration from low-income countries can be politically divisive, and some politicians have seized upon immigration as as uh, uh, as a topic uh, that they can exploit uh, for the benefit of populism. Uh, and and so I think what this has led to is is uh, this rise of authoritarianism or a slow erosion of democracy. We have seen this happen in Hungary, in Poland, uh, in Brazil, uh, in Mexico, uh, in, uh, in the Philippines, Turkey, uh, many, other, many parts of the world. Uh, so that's what I meant by this rise of, uh, or, or the erosion of democracy. Thank you, Dean. And I want to stay on the topic of populism are, do you think there are any other instances in recent world history where populism has led to an erosion of democracy? Well, we saw, again, I'm not saying that these are identical cases in world history, but I think we have seen in the past, uh, especially uh, during just in the aftermath of the Great Depression in the 1930s, uh, you saw this kind of populism arise uh, and and there were certain political parties in Europe that that preyed on on people who had lost their jobs and their fortunes uh, and and were in a bad uh, economic situation uh, as a result of the depression and and I think uh, the uh, uh, the sort of populism uh, or the populist streak amongst uh, certain political parties led 
uh, to fairly authoritarian parties, parties that did not really believe uh, in democracy uh, taking power and then cementing their power by changing the rules of the game, as it were. Uh, this is what we saw happen in Germany and Italy uh, and in, in other countries in Europe uh, uh, during the uh, 1930s and 40s. So that's the comparison I was, uh, uh, I think that one could make. Now, again, I'm not arguing that we are in a similar situation now, uh, but unless we address this issue uh, uh, forthrightly, uh, we are going to, we may end up in a situation of the type that we saw in the 1930s and 40s, and we don't want that to happen. There's an excellent book that came out a few years ago called the uh, called uh, How Democracies Die. And it, it, it sort of uh, basically documents the fact that democracies die not through uh, revolutions or upheavals like that, but they just sort of slowly, uh, you, you sort of have the slow erosion of democracy. Uh, and, and many autocrats come into power using uh, democratic means, but then somehow they rig the rules and continue to stay on in power. Well, thank you so much, Dean. Also, as a quick side note, a lot of political experts and historians worry that, you know, um, America's democracy is, democracy is on the brink of erosion and, um, frankly, utter um, like destruction. Do you, do you see that? Um, does that worry you a little bit, like, to our own country domestically? Or do we do you not think we have much of a problem to worry? I don't think we have too much of a problem to worry. I mean, again, it's it's good to be vigilant, but I think uh, uh, American democratic institutions are very strong. Uh, and by those institutions, I mean institutions of the uh, free people, free press, uh, an independent judiciary, and the bureaucracy. Actually, there's been a lot written recently on how. Uh, the bureaucracy uh, sort of helped prevent uh, many of the excesses that we saw uh, during the previous uh, U.S. administration. Uh, and, and so I think these, uh, uh, there was, we had the beginnings of a tendency towards authoritarianism uh, when we had uh, President Trump uh, deny the election results and and be unwilling to step down uh, from power. Uh, but fortunately, uh, it didn't amount to much because of all the pushback from our democratic institutions. So our democratic institutions are strong enough, uh, I believe, to withstand this uh, erosion of democracy, but we have to be vigilant. Uh, uh, in other countries, the democratic institutions are not as strong. And, and so I think the slide from democracy to authoritarianism has been uh, has not been checked and and we have seen them slide uh, into uh, into autocracy and authoritarianism. But I think in the United States uh, uh, there's a very low likelihood of that because you know it's a it's a mature democracy. We have had our democracy for 200 years and and our institutions are pretty solid to withstand this. Social injustice, health disparities, climate change. Are you interested in solving pressing challenges like these currently facing our region and the world? 
Then consider joining the next cohort of future policy leaders like me by applying for the UCR Master of Public Policy program. Learn more at mpp.ucr.edu. You can also find the link in our show notes. Dean Dialatica, I would like to follow up on one of the big global challenges you had mentioned, namely the return of big power conflict. We are seeing this with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, China's increasing aggression towards Taiwan, and increasing tensions in the Middle East. Do you think these conflicts will have long-term consequences on such things as globalization and economic progress in the world? Uh, thank you, Dinara. Uh, and, you know, I think this is an important question uh, because uh, for at least the last 30 years since the end of the Cold War, uh, the world sort of went through a relatively peaceful period where you had uh, sort of conflicts around the world, but none of the big powers got involved in these conflicts. So they were not big power conflicts in the sense that uh, we have had uh, in the first part of the 20th, that we had in the first part of the 20th century. I think uh, I would sort of say that the conflicts in the Middle East have always been going on, and even the more recent conflicts in the Middle East haven't really drawn in uh, the big powers uh, into them. So I would set those aside. But what I'm a little worried about is the uh, conflict uh, between the United States and Russia in Ukraine, over Ukraine, uh, and and the tensions that have arisen in the last couple of years uh, between the United States and China, uh, and uh, the likelihood that those tensions could actually become uh, uh, even greater uh, if China were to invade Taiwan, which you know it might in the next few years. Uh, I think. The world currently has two or three superpowers, the United States, uh, China, and Russia. Uh, Russia is probably not the kind of superpower that it used to be, but it's still uh, an important force to contend with and it has a large uh, stockpile of uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, it is an important actor on the world stage, at least militarily, if not economically. China, on the other hand, is both an economic and a military uh, power and, uh, and a competitor to the United States. So any conflict between uh, these countries uh, poses a problem. Uh, with Russia, I think we saw the United States in coordination with its allies uh, put a very comprehensive set of sanctions uh, on Russia, uh, mostly economic sanctions. And, and those, you know, worked initially. It's not clear how much they have, how effective they have been, but they have been unprecedented in their nature and their scale. Uh, they have essentially cut off Russia from, uh, from the world financial system. Uh, now, Russia probably doesn't have many options to uh, uh, 
to respond to these sanctions. Uh, they have tried to evade them at the margin. But, but what I am worried about is that similar sanctions imposed on China uh, could really create uh, more problems for the world in the sense that China sort of has seen what has happened with Russia recently with respect to the sanctions. And, and it knows that it may suffer similar sanctions uh, if it did decide to invade Taiwan in the near future. Uh, and, and so it's probably preparing for these by decoupling itself uh, from the United States and the Western economies. Uh, which means basically they are becoming more self self reliant on producing uh, on producing key manufactured goods. Uh, the big uh, the big issue right now between the United States and Russia is uh, semiconductors, and the United States has put a ban on American companies or European companies selling semiconductor chips uh, to Chinese companies. Uh, and and this will really starve uh, China of much needed technology for producing sort of critical infrastructure that it needs. And and I think China's response to these kind of sanctions uh, will be to uh, spur innovation and try to come up uh, with domestic sources of technology. Uh, where it won't need to rely on on the United States and the West, and so uh, in in some sense we have seen this happen already. Uh, the United States has been decoupling itself from Chinese supply chains, uh, and China has been decoupling itself from American and Western supply chains, and and uh, uh, you will see this now happen with respect to consumer goods as well. Apple phones uh, has decided that it's going to shift a lot of its production facilities over the next several years from China to other countries like Vietnam and India. Uh, and you will see this happen in industry after industry. And, and so in a sense, this may well, I hope it doesn't, but it may mark the end of this four decade period of globalization that we have witnessed. Uh, in particular, globalization has really sort of been on a fast track since 2000 when China was admitted to the World Trade Organization, WTO. And, uh, and globalization took off. Now, you know, there are many reasons why globalization uh, uh, may have hurt some sections of society in the Western countries, uh, but overall globalization has been a, a big boon to the world. It has resulted in progress for millions of people. It has brought billions of people uh, above the poverty line in countries like China and India. And so I worry about globalization sort of slowing down or eventually reversing itself. We don't want two separate sort of worlds, economic worlds, one with China sort of dominating it and the other one with the United States and its allies dominating it. Uh, we really want a more integrated world. And, and so this is where I worry a little bit about big power conflict and its implications for globalization and economic progress. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, it's really interesting how you brought up the idea of allies in the U.S. using their allies to put sanctions on Russia and how China has been attempting to decouple itself from Western economies. I was just curious, how do you see this? Like you had mentioned that there could be a strain on globalization. Do you see that strain extending also to supranational organizations? Uh, you mean like international organizations like the World Bank, for instance? Yeah. United Nations. Yes, I I see this already. I mean, you have you have uh, China has actually created its own version of a World Bank in the last few years, uh, and and I believe China does actually more lending to the developing countries to third world countries uh, than uh, than the World Bank uh, and uh, other Western banks do. Uh, well, I shouldn't call them Western banks because they are multilateral banks and China has a stake uh, in the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank and other international banks as well. But but uh, uh, you have had uh, some sort of parallel organizations arise, uh, trade organizations, uh, multilateral development organizations. Uh, and, and so, yes, this decoupling could mean that we have two entire sets of supranational organizations uh, in the world. Uh, one sort of allied with the Chinese and one allied with the United States. And again, I don't think that's good for the world. Thank you, Dean Bulalakar, for your insights on each issue. It was really interesting to hear your thoughts on these critical topics and the kinds of policy solutions we should be looking at. Before we end the episode, I thought it would be appropriate to maybe give you an opportunity to briefly describe your thoughts on the School of Public Policy. How do you feel about where the school is now compared to when you first found it? Well, uh, that's very easy to answer because when I first founded it about nine years ago, nine, ten years ago, uh, there was no school at all. There was basically just... Uh, it was a one-person school. I was appointed as the founding dean, and there was no one else. Uh, and here, fast forward nine years later, and we have a very vibrant school with more than 350 undergraduate and graduate students, about 20 faculty members, uh, 25 staff members, and uh, and. Uh, uh, four, maybe now perhaps five vibrant research centers that are generating lots of uh, grants and contracts and grants and uh, research activity uh, uh, and, and making political waves, uh, making policy, having a big policy impact uh, in California, in the inland region and around the country. So yes, uh, looking back, I... I cannot imagine uh, where the school is now. I cannot, I could not have imagined how far the school would progress within the short period of uh, 10 years. And, and it's largely because of the great faculty, uh, the wonderful staff and, and the phenomenal students like you that we have. Uh, we are very lucky to have uh, had all these wonderful students, staff, and faculty uh, who helped make this school uh, the success that it is today. Well, thank you so much, Dean, for your remarks and for joining us on the Policy Chats podcast uh, and for the amazing work you've done for the School of Public Policy. 
Uh, I'm honored to be involved both as a student and as host of the podcast. I also want to thank my fellow ambassadors, Dinara Godegay, Andrew Shannon, Catherine Ma, and Zeno Marganian for joining us today and for their invaluable aid in the production of the podcast. Dean, we all enjoyed getting a chance to speak with you today. Likewise, it was my pleasure and honor to be with all of you. And thank you again, uh, Kevin and Dinar and Dinara and, and uh, uh, Andrew, uh, Catherine uh, and Zeno. Uh, enjoy talking to all of you. Goodbye. This podcast is a production of the UC Riverside School of Public Policy. Our theme music was produced by C. Codain. I'm Kevin Karami. Till next time.